Dollars to Donuts with your host, Steve Portigal. Howdy, and here we are with another episode of Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk to the people who are leading user research in their organization. I just taught a public workshop in New York City about user research organized by Rosenfeld Media. If you missed it, don't despair. This workshop, Fundamentals of Interviewing Users, is also happening September 13th in San Francisco. I'll put the link in the show notes. Send your team. Recommend this workshop to your friends. If you aren't in San Francisco or you can't make it September 13th, you can hire me to come into your organization and lead a training workshop. Recently, I've taught classes for companies in New York City, and coming up will be San Diego, as well as the Midwest and Texas. I'd love to talk with you about coming into your company and teaching people about research. As always, a reminder that supporting me and my business is a way to support this podcast and ensure that I can keep making new episodes. If you have feedback about the podcast, I'd love to hear from you at donuts at portugal.com or on Twitter at dollars to donuts. That's D-O-L-L-R-S-T-O-D-O-N-U-T-S. I was pretty excited this week to receive a new book in the mail. It's called The Art of Noticing by Rob Walker, whose name you may recognize from his books or New York Times columns or his appearance in Gary Huswitz's documentary Objectified. I've only just started the book, but I am eager to read it, which is not something I say that often about a book of nonfiction. The book is structured around 131 different exercises to practice noticing. Each page has really great pull quotes, and the exercises seem to come from a bunch of interesting sources, like people who focus on creativity or art or storytelling. Rob also publishes a great newsletter with lots of additional tips and examples around noticing, and I've even sent him a few references that he's included. I'll put all this info into the notes for this episode. And, you know, this topic takes me back to a workshop I ran a few years ago at one of the first user research conferences I ever attended called About Within Four. The workshop was about noticing, and I wonder if it's time to revisit that workshop. I can look to Rob's book as a new resource. Well, let's get to the episode. I had a fascinating and in-depth conversation with Lisa Reichelt. She is the head of research and insights at Atlassian in Sydney, Australia. Our interview went on for a long time, and I'm going to break it up into two parts. So let's get to part one here. Well, Lisa, thanks very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start with uh, just uh, maybe some background introduction. Uh Who are you? What do you do? Maybe a little bit of how we got here by we, I mean you. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I, I I am the head of research and insights at Atlassian, probably best known for um, creating software such as Jira and uh, Confluence, basically tools tools that people use to make software. And then we also have Trello in our stable as well. Um, and so the, there are a bunch of tools that are used by people who don't make software as well. Mm. So yeah, a whole a whole bunch of stuff. Right. It seems like Jira and Confluence. If you're any kind of software developer, you just those are just words you're using and terms from within those tools. It's just part of the vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but if you're outside, you maybe have never heard those words before. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, I, I think it's kind of, Atlassian is quite a famous company in Australia because, you know, it's kind of big and, and successful. But I think if you did a poll across Australia to find out who knew what Atlassian actually does, it, the, the, the the brand awareness is high. The knowledge of what the company does is, is pretty low, um, unless you're a software developer or, or a sort of project manager 
manager of software teams, in which case you probably have heard of or used or have an opinion about Jira and probably Confluence as well. Yeah. And then Trello is used by people that aren't necessarily software makers. Correct. A bunch of people do use it for making software as well, but, you know, it's also used for people running, uh, like in businesses, running non-technical projects, and then a huge number of people just use it kind of personally, planning holidays or weddings or just, you know, I've, I plan my kids' weekends on Trello sometimes and, mm. and I know I'm not alone. So, yeah, it's a real, it's a, it's a very what they would call a horizontal product. Horizontal product can go into a lot of different industries. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So I'm very skeptical about that term, by the way. Uh, horizontal, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or the fact that it might necessarily be a good thing, but um, that's a that's another another topic, probably. So no, I can't follow up on that. Yeah, uh, well, you, yeah, you can. Well, problem with horizontal products, I think, is that they only do a certain amount for everybody, and then people reach a point where they really want to be able to do more. And if your product is too horizontal, then they will graduate to other products. Uh, and that gives you interesting business model challenges, I think. So you have to be continually kind of seeking new people who only want to use your product up to a certain point uh, in order to maintain your your kind of marketplace, really. And I think about uh, my own small business and just any research I've done in small and just under medium-sized businesses where everything's in Excel, sort of historically, where mm. Excel is the mm-hmm. – there may be a product – cloud-based or otherwise to do a thing, but someone's built kind of a custom Excel tool to do it. Mm. Is that, so is Excel a, a horizontal product that way? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think, I, in fact, I was talking to someone about this yesterday. I think that um, that for a lot of people, the first port of call for everything is a spreadsheet. They try to do everything that they can possibly do in a spreadsheet. And then there are some people who are like the, ooh, new shiny tool. Let's, you know, always trying to find an application for a new shiny tool. But I think actually the vast majority of people take the first tool that they knew that had some kind of flexibility in it. So if you can't do it in Word or Excel, like a lot, people will compromise a lot to be able to do things in tools that they have great familiarity with. Yeah. But you're taking, you know, from the maker point of view, you're saying there's a risk in that. The horizontalness, the lack of specificity creates kind of a marketplace risk for the maker of the tool. Can do. It, it just, I think for it to be successful, you just have to be at such a huge scale um, to, to be able to always meet the needs of enough people. Um, but I guess, you know, things like Excel and, and Word and, and Trello, for example, they'll always do some things for some people. Like just because you move to uh, a, a more kind of sophisticated tool doesn't mean that you completely abandon the old tool. You probably still use it for a bunch of things. So uh, the, your title is Head of Research and Insights? Correct. So what's the difference between research and insights? Yeah, good question. I didn't make up my own title. I kind of inherited it. The, If I remember correctly, the way that it came about was that um, the when I came into my role, it was a new combination of people in the team in that we were bringing together the people who had been doing design research in the organisation and the voice of the customer team who were you know, effectively running the MPS. And and I think because we were putting the two of them together, it sounded weird to say research and voice of the customer. So they went with research and insights instead. And honestly, I haven't spent any time really thinking about whether that was a good title or not. 
I've got other problems on my yeah. mind that are probably more pressing, so I've just kind of left it. You know, I mean, if you want to get into it, I think research is the act of going out and, and gathering the data and, and pulling it all together to, to make sense and insights are hopefully the sense that you get from it. Um, and we do try to do both of those things in my team, so I think it's a reasonably accurate description. How long have you been in this role? It's about 18 months now, yeah. What's, uh, what kind of, if you look back in 18 months, what are the notable things or the, you know, for the experience of people inside the organization, what has changed in 18 months? Mm, quite a few things. So the, the, the shape and makeup of the team has changed quite a lot. Um, we're, we're, we're bigger and differently composed to what we were previously. Um, when I first came in, we, it was literally made up of uh, researchers who were working in products. Prior to me coming in, they were reporting to design managers. Um, and we, for various reasons, pulled them out of products pretty quickly once I started. Um, and then we had the other part of the business who were running MPS that was being gathered in product, and we don't do that anymore either. So those that team is doing quite different things now. So, yeah, we've changed changed a lot of things. We've introduced uh, uh, a couple of kind of big programs of work as well, one of them being um, a big piece of work around top tasks, so taking Jerry McGovern's approach to top tasks, trying to that kind of foundational knowledge in the organisation. So that's kind of new. I mean, there'd always been loads of people doing jobs to be done type stuff, but very, very close to the product level. So we've tried to pull back a little bit to really build a bigger understanding of like what are what are the, the larger problems that we're trying to solve for people and how might we see the opportunities to address those more effectively. So trying to, trying to create shared knowledge around what those top tasks are, I'm guessing for different products, different users, scenarios. Yeah, well, one of the things that we've really tried to do is to get away from product up tasks and get more into really understanding like what what problem space is uh, is the product or, or combinations of products trying to address. So we don't do top tasks for Jira. We do top tasks for agile software teams. And then through that, we can then sort of ladder down to what that means for Jira or Confluence or Bitbucket or Trello or whichever kind of individual or combination of, of products we have. But it means that we sort of pull away a little bit from that feature focus that I think can be very uh, seductive and also really limiting. What uh, What's the size of the team now? So I have a general rule in life of never count how many researchers you have in the organisation because... You, because it, it's always too many, according to whoever is asking you. Um, not you, but like right, any, so, any, someone that senior someone people. that assigns resources. <laughs> exactly, to staff exactly. Those I think we're probably around the mid twenties now. And uh, around the world, or, or you know, around different locations. Yeah, we're mostly mostly we're in Sydney and California, so we're across three different offices there, and we have a couple of people working remotely as well. So I have somebody remote in Europe and somebody another person in California who's working out of a remote office too. And what, um, yeah, what's the you sort of talked about sort of the the makeup of the team evolving? What kinds of without sort of enumerating, you know, what are sort of the backgrounds, skill sets? I don't know any way that you want to segment researchers. Mm. What kinds of, you know, what's the mix that you're putting together? So I think, you know, at, at the highest level, we've got people who do design research, 
um, predominantly qualitative and they do a mixture of discovery work and evaluative work. We've got um, a team of uh, what we call quantitative researchers and those are generally people who have got a market research, marketing research type background and so they bring in a lot of those data and statistical skills that, that our other crew don't necessarily have quite so much of. And then we have a research ops team as well. Um, who are doing some different things. And we have a handful of research educators. And what are the research educators doing? Educating people about how to do research. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, these are hard questions and hard answers, yeah. Well, if you dig into it too much, it gets complicated pretty quickly. Um, So I think the reality of research at Atlassian is that the the people in the research team probably do, uh, you know, best case twenty percent of the research that happens in the organisation, and that's probably that's probably an optimistic estimate as well. So, uh, a huge amount of research is done by product managers and by designers, people in the organisation, most of whom haven't had any kind of training, uh, and so take a very intuitive approach to how they might do research, um, and so these. The research education team are really trying to help shape the way that this work is done so that it can be more effective. I am thinking about um, a talk I saw you give at the Mind the Product conference where you began the talk, uh, I think you kind of bookended the talk with uh, a a question that you didn't answer. I don't think you answered it definitively, which was, uh, is bad research better than no research? Or words close to that. Something like that. Um, And uh, it was a great provocation, I think. To, to raise the question and sort of talk about what the different aspects of that, you know, how we might answer that, what the trade-offs are. But, I, you know, when you talk about this design education effort, I can't help but think that that's connected to that question. If 80% of the research is done by people acting intuitively, yeah, how do you, how do you level up the quality of that? Yeah, absolutely. Right, which implies that, well, I don't know if it answers. Does, it, does that answer the question? Does the, uh, I'm not trying to like got you here, but if you are trying to level up the quality that suggests that at some point better research is, I don't know, there's some equation here about bad versus better versus no. I'm not sure what the, the, the map of it is, but. Yeah, so this has been the real thing that's occupied my mind a lot for the last couple of years, really. Um, and I've seen different organizations have really different kind of appetites for participating in research in different ways. And I think at the time that I did that talk, which was probably... What, Almost a year ago. From yeah, there. yeah, yeah. I think I was still trying to come to terms with exactly where I felt about what I felt about all of this because as somebody who, well, somebody in my role, everybody in an organisation is one on. A lot of people in the organisation are going to be watching you to see you trying to be overly precious and to become, you know, a gatekeeper or a bottleneck or all of these kinds of things. And so you, so I've always felt like I had to be very careful about what you enabled and what you stopped because everyone has work that they need to get done, right? And the fact that people want to involve their customers and their users in the design process is something that I want to be seen to be supporting. Like I don't want to be, I don't want to stop that. And I certainly don't want a message that we shouldn't have a closeness to our users and customers when we're doing the research. But I've also seen a lot of practices that are done with the best of intentions that just get us to some crazy outcomes. Uh, And that really worries me, worries me on two levels. It worries me in terms of the fact that we, we do that and we don't move our products forward in the way that we could. 
uh, and it worries me because I think it reflects really poorly on research as a profession. And I think, you know, most of us have seen situations where people have said, well, I did the research and nothing got better, so I'm not going to do it anymore. Clearly it's a waste of time, right? And almost always what's happened there is that the way that people have executed it has not been in a way that has helped them to see the things that they need to see or make the decisions that they need to make. So it's this really hard line to walk to try to understand how to enable, but how to enable in a way that is actually enabling in a positive way and and, and is not actually facilitating really problematic outcomes. And so that's, yeah, that's that's my conundrum is, is balancing that. And so I feel, on the one hand, I feel really uncomfortable saying uh, no research is better than bad research. But on the other hand, I've seen plenty of evidence that makes me feel like actually maybe it's true. So that, so there's kind of a time horizon there that the, the bad research may lead to the wrong decisions that impact the product and then yeah, sort of harm the prospects of, I'm just reflecting back, but harm the prospects of, of a research to kind of go forward. Hmm. Um, right, every researcher has heard the, well, we already knew that response, hmm. um, which is to me, it's, it's part of what you're talking about. It's that when research doesn't, isn't conducted in a way and, and sort of isn't facilitated so that people have those learning moments where they... I think you said something about sort of helping them see the thing that's going to help them make the right decision. Mm. And that's, right, that's not a, that's different than what methodology do you use or are you asking leading questions? Maybe leading questions are part of it because you confirm what you knew and so you can't see something new because you're not, you're not kind of surfacing it, but. Loads of it comes around framing, right? Loads yeah. of it comes around where are you in the organization? What, what, what are you focused on right now? What's your remit? What's your scope? What are you allowed to or interested in asking questions about? And in a lot of cases, this high volume of research comes from very downstream, very feature-focused areas, right? So, so you know, if, if you're working on a product that has got some more foundational issues that need to be addressed, but the vast majority of the work is happening at that very detailed feature level, how are you ever going to stop kind of circling the drain. You get stuck in this kind of local maxima. How are you ever going to take that big substantial step to really move your product forward if it's nobody's job, nobody's priority to do that? And I think so a lot of this is kind of structural that so much of so many of our people who are conducting this research are so close to like the machine of delivery and shipping and shipping and shipping as quickly as possible that they don't have the opportunity to think you know, they sort of look sideways and see what's happening on either side of their feature. Even when there are teams that are working on really similar things, you know, everyone's so heads down and feature driven. And so, you know, the doing the least possible that you can to validate and then ship to learn, which is a whole other area of um, of bad practice, I think, in, in many cases, it it's really limiting. And, and you can see organisations that spend a huge amount of time and effort doing this research but it's at such a kind of micro level that they don't see the problems that their customers are dying to tell them about. And they never ask about the problems that the customers are dying to tell them about because customers just answer the questions that they asked. And that and that's that's kind of what bothers me. And so it's not about in, in a lot of cases, some of it is about practice. Like I mean, I think it's amazing how few people can just resist the temptation 
to say, hey, I've got this idea for a feature. How much would you like it? Like that's, it's, you know, and then, and then you can go seven out of 10 people said they'd love my feature. Like that feels so definitive and so reliable and, and that's very desirable and hard to resist. So yes, that happens. But the bigger thing for me, I think, is the where research is situated and the fact that you don't have both that kind of big picture view as well as that micro view. We just have all of these fragments of microness and a huge amount of effort expended to do it. And I don't feel like it's helping us take those big steps forward. Lisa, all you need is a data repository so that you can surface those micro findings to the rest of the organization, right? <sighs> You're a troll, Steve. I am trolling you. You're a troll. But again, I mean, in some, kind of, yes, yeah, yeah, kind of. But again, like all of those micro things don't necessarily collectively give you the full view. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of those micro things, because of the way they're being asked, actually give you information that's useless. Like if, if all of your questioning is around validating a particular feature set that you've already decided that you think you want to do and you go in asking about that, you never really ask for the why. Like why would you use, like what, who's actually using this? Why would they use this? What what actual real problem are they solving with this, right? And so the problem becomes the feature. Um, and, and, then, and, and then all of that research then becomes very disposable because the, the, the feature ships and then nobody uses it as much as everybody thought they would or they're not as satisfied with it as what they thought they would be. And, and so we just keep iterating, iterating, iterating on these tiny things. Like we move buttons around, we change buttons, we like add more stuff in, surely that will fix it. Um, but it's because we haven't taken that step back to actually understand the why, and I think it's like if you if you're talking about those those big user need level questions, the big whys, then you know what you, you can put those things in a repository, and you can build more and more detail into those because those tend to be long lasting. Um, and then at the other end, you know, just the basic interaction design type stuff that we learn through research. A lot of those things don't change much either. But it's that bit in the middle, that feature level stuff is the most disposable and often the least useful. And I feel like that's where we spend a huge amount of our time. Do you have any theories as to why in large software enterprise technology companies that there is a focus on, you know, leaning leaning heavily on that kind of sort of feature validation research? What, what causes that? I think that... Um, there's probably at least two things that I can think about that contribute to that. One is around what's driving people, what gets people their promotions, what makes people look good in organisations. Shipping stuff. Shipping stuff gets you good feedback. You know, when you're going for your promotion, they want a list of the stuff that you've done, stuff that you've shipped. Um, and, you know, in, in, in a lot of organisations, just the fact that you've shipped it is enough, right? Nobody's actually following up to see whether or not it actually made a substantive difference in customers' lives or not. So I think that drive to ship is incredibly important. And... And, and our org structures as well, like the way that we divide teams up now, especially in organisations where you've got uh, this kind of like, you know, microservice platform kind of environment, right? So you can have teams who have got huge dependencies on each other and they really have to try to componentize their work quite a lot. So you have all of these kind of little micro teams who, you know, the customer's experience is all of their all of their work combined, but they are they all have different bosses with different KPIs or different OKRs or whatever the case may be. And I think that that's a, a problem. Um, and then the other thing is this like build measure, build 
what is it? I've forgotten how you say it. Mm, I'm the wrong person. Build, measure, learn. Yeah, okay. Build, measure, learn. I think so. Mm. The lean thing, right? Right. Um, which is this kind of idea that you can just build it and ship it and then learn. Um, and that's that means that means that like if that is if it had been learn, build, measure, learn, we would be in a different situation, right? Because we would be doing some discovery up front, and and then we would have a lot of stuff that we already knew before we had to ship it out on the customers. Uh, but it's not. It's build. You know, have an idea. Build, measure, learn, uh, and then people are often not particularly fussy about thinking about the learn bit. So we'll ship it, we'll put some analytics on it, and we'll put a feedback collector on it, and then we'll learn. What are you going to learn? Whatever. What, what does success look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, it's kind of lazy, and it it makes our we we, we treat our customers like lab rats when we do that. And and I, I feel like they can tell. Um, there's lots of yeah. There's lots of stuff that gets shipped that shouldn't get shipped that we know shouldn't get shipped. And I'm, I'm not talking about Lassian specifically. I'm talking about in general. We think we all see it in our day to day digital lives that you know that that people ship stuff that we really should know better. But this build, measure, learn thing means that you know unless you can see it in the product analytics, unless you can see you know thousands of customers howling with you know anger and distress, doesn't count. Reminds me of a client I worked with a few years ago where you know we had some pretty deep understandings of certain points of the interactions that were happening and the, what the value proposition was and where there was meaning and just a lot of sort of some pretty rich stuff. Uh, and uh, the client was great because they kept, uh, help, they kept introducing us to different product teams to kind of help apply what we had learned to really, really specific uh, you know, decisions that were going to be made. And, but what we started to see this pattern was um, they were interested in uh, setting up experiments, not improving the product. And in fact, it's a, this, it's a product that has an annual use cycle. So, you know, the time horizon for actually making changes was just really far. And, and some of the stuff was not rocket science. Like it was clear for this decision A versus B versus C like or, or you know here's the research said very clearly like this is what people care about or what's going to have impact or what's going to make them feel secure in these decisions and they're like great we can conduct an experiment we have you know three weeks set up the experiment and then we'll get some data and I was I just hadn't really encountered that mindset before it's I think I don't know if they were really build uh, build measure learn literally if that was their philosophy but uh I didn't know how to sort of help. The, I wasn't able to move them to the way that I wanted it done. Uh, and I really was just encountering it for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like there was a missed opportunity there. Like we knew how to improve the product. Uh, and I wasn't against, like there are conducting experiments and measuring and learning is awesome. That's research. Uh, but acting on what you've learned seems like why you're doing the research in the first place. Mm. I think, I mean, I think it feels as though we have this great tool set that we could be using, right? We've got going out and doing your kind of ethnography, contextual type stuff. And then right at the other end, we've got, you know, the product analytics and running experiments and a whole bunch of stuff in between. And it really feels to me as though organizations tend to really just get excited about one thing and go hard on that one thing. And, uh, and you know, growth, doing the experiments is, is, a, is, a, is a big thing right now. 
And we, you know, I mean, I, I see loads of loads of situations where we look at data and we go, oh, look, the, the, the graph's going in this direction. Well, the graph's not going in that direction. Why? And our, our, our kind of, our, our, like, there's so much guessing behind all of that, right? And, and you know, if it doesn't go quite right, well, then let's, let's have another guess. Let's have another guess. Let's have another guess. Um, and there's, like you say, there's so much stuff that we probably already know if we could connect two parts of the organisation together to talk together more effectively. Or, uh, you know, there are, there are methods that we could use to find out the why pretty quickly without having to just, you know, put another experiment, another experiment onto, onto, our, onto our customers, our users. But, but, the, but the knowledge of this tool set and the ability to, to choose the right tool and, and apply it and to apply these approaches in combination seems to be where the challenge is. What's the role of design in, in this uh, in terms of, um, you know, here's the thing we know and here's the thing we want to make. Uh, we haven't talked about designers. Mm. I, I mean, ideally for me, I sort of hope designers are the instruments of making that translation. Uh, you know, without design, then you can sort of sort of test implementations, but you can't synthesize and make anything new necessarily. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, theoretically design has a really important role to play here. Because um, I think design hopefully understands the, the user-centered design process better than anybody else. Understands, you know, the the opportunities for iteration and levels of fidelity for exploring problems in a way that that nobody else in the team does. And lots of designers do know that, but you know, the the time pressure is enormous, especially in these kind of larger tech companies where a lot of the time, you know, designers designers are also concerned about being bottlenecks. They're, you know, they have to feed the engineering machine and and it can be really difficult for them to have conversations to talk about all of the work that we should be doing before we ship something. So I feel as though, you know, they have a lot of pressure on them, a lot of time pressure on them. They're, they're being pressured to really contract, you know, the, the amount of effort that they put in before we ship something. And there is, yeah, there's this huge desire amongst product teams and and their bosses to just get something shipped get something live and then and then we'll learn that I think design really struggles with and I don't know it's 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 it can be really difficult in those kinds of environments to be the person who stands up and says we need to slow down you know we need to do less and do it better uh, and yeah and so that's I, I I have empathy for designers in their inability to shift this system, these problems necessarily because of this big pressure that's being put on them just to, you know, keep the engineers coding. Right. If you say you want more time to work on something, yeah, what are the risks to you for doing that? Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, on a on a personal level, everyone wants to look good in front of their boss. You know, everyone would like a pay rise and a promotion. And the easiest way to get those things is to do what you're told and ship the stuff. You know, keep everyone busy produce the shiny stuff, let it get coded up, let it go live, learn, carry on. Like that's, you know, think, thinking short term, that's that's how to have a happy life. Is that how you're going to fundamentally improve the product or service that you're working on? Probably not. But it takes a lot of bravery to try to change that, to try to or to sort of stop this crazy train that's out of control, throw yourself in front of the bus, all that kind of stuff. Like it's it, it's it's hard, especially when there are loads of people all around you who are very happy to keep doing it the way that it's being done right now. So, but then I think you know that's that's researchers' role, that's design's role. I would like that to be PM's role as well. And you know, most engineers are well, a lot of engineers very 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 interested in making sure that the work that they're doing is actually solving real problems and delivering real value as well. So as you point to the individuals, 
there's a lot of shared objectives, but you point to the system, mm. which is, I think it's the system of, it's the reward system and the incentive system, but there's also some, I think there's just sort of what day-to-day looks like, the sort of the operations of the system of, of producing technology products. I think there's also, there's something about like, what, what, what do people like to see? What, what, what gets people excited, right? And, you know, graphs pointing upwards, you know, in the right direction is really exciting. Like certain outcomes are really exciting. Um, ambiguous outcomes, really not exciting at all. You know, having things that go fast, very exciting. Things that go slow, not exciting. So I think there are all of these things that, that this collection of humans that, that form an organisation have a strong bias towards that we get really excited about. Um, that um, that don't necessarily help us in the long run. Um, you know, you see lots of people who get really excited about the graph. Very few people dig behind the graph to the data to go, where did this data come from? How how much can I actually believe it? Like people are so willing to just accept experiment findings without actually kind of digging in behind it. And a lot of the time when you do dig in behind it, you go, oh, that doesn't look very reliable at all. Um, so there's something about kind of we 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 love to tell ourselves that we're data informed or data driven, but a huge number of the people who are excited about that don't have very much data literacy to be able to check in and and make sure that you know this stuff that they're getting excited about is actually reliable. So how could someone improve their data literacy? I think that there is a lot of a lot of work that we need to do to make sure that we actually understand, you know, how experiments should be structured and understand more about, be more curious about where is this data coming from and what are the different ways that we can get tricked by this, right? And there, there, there are tons of like books and papers and all kinds of things on, on the subject. But actually, like when you, when you go looking for it and you're coming at it with a critical mind rather than with a, I don't know, a mind that gets excited by graphs, um, it, it's, you know, it's, a lot of it is pretty logical. You think about like, you know, it's like surveys, right? You know, who, who did this survey actually, who actually answered these questions? Uh, we, instead of just going, hey, there's an answer that supports my argument. I'm just going to grab that, um, you know, to, to, to dig behind it and go like, just, are these, are the people who are being surveyed actually the same people that, that we're talking about when we're making this decision? Or is there something about the nature of those group of people that is going to bias their response that's, it's it's remarkable to me how few people actually kind of check the source to make sure that that it's worthy of relying on everyone everyone a lot of people are really keen to just grab whatever whatever data they can get that, that supports their argument. I think this is another one of those kind of human things, those human inclinations that we have that lead us towards kind of bad behaviours. I can imagine that, you know, with this research education effort that you're doing, uh, you know, people that participate in that are going to learn, yeah, you know, how to make better choices in the research that they then run, uh, you know, some practical skills, some planning, uh, some framing, as you talked about. It seems like that literacy is... A likely side effect of that, or maybe it's not the side effect, maybe it's the effect. How to be better consumers of research. Once you understand how the sausage is made a little bit, then you you understand, oh yeah, that's a biased question, or that's bad sampling, and there's a choice to make in all of these, and we have to question those choices to understand the research that's presented to us. I hadn't really thought of you know training people to do research as a way to help them in their consumption or mm. critical thinking around research. Something else that we've really 
come to realise recently as well is that because of all of the other pressures that the people who are making these decisions are having to deal with as well, we'll, we think we'll do much better if we train the entire team together instead of just training the people who are tasked with doing the research. Because something that we've observed is that you can train people and they can go, this is great. I really I really see how what I was doing before was creating these kind of not great outcomes and, and what I need to do to do better. And then you'll see them not that long later doing exactly the opposite to what we thought we agreed we were going to do going forward. Um, and we're like, well, what's happening? These are like smart, good people who have been given the information and are still doing crazy stuff. Like what's going on with that? And you realise, you know, they go back into their context where, you know, everyone's just trying to drive to get stuff done faster, 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 faster. And you have to plan to do good research. Like the, the, the easiest research to do really, really quickly is crappy research. If you want to do good research, you, you do have to do some planning. Uh, and so you need to get into a proactive mindset for it rather than a reactive mindset for it, and you need the entire team to be able to do that. So one of the things that, that we're looking to do moving forward is not just to train the designers and, and the PMs, but actually to train a, a ton of people all around them in the teams to help them understand how the way that you ask the questions and who you ask them of and where, all, you know, all of the different things that can impact the reliability of your research uh, requires planning and thinking about in advance uh, so that we hope that that means that the whole team will understand the importance of taking the time to do it. And it won't just be like one or two people in a, in a larger team, you know, fighting to do the right thing and being pressured by everybody else. So I think it is, yeah, it is the education aspect, I suspect, is super important. Um, and it goes way beyond just helping people who are doing research to do better research. It, it goes to helping the whole organisation to understand the, the impact and risk that goes with a, doing a lot of research activity in, in the wrong way or the wrong place. It's uh, just fascinating to me and I think a big challenge for all of us that like, lots of researchers are involved in education in one form or another, uh, you know, workshops, the thing, you know, a, a big program like you've been building. Um, but we're not, most of us are not trained educators. We don't have sort of pedagogical, theoretical background about, it's about communicating information. It's about influence and changing minds. And it just seems like a lot of researchers, uh, you know, from an individual researcher on a product team to someone like you that's looking at the whole organization, we're sort of experimenting and, um, you know, trying to build tools and processes that help people learn. And learn is not just imparting of information, but reframe and empower like these big words uh, where, yeah, we don't, I mean, I wish I had, uh, I wish you had a PhD in education. I wish I had that, you know, or that I had been a, you know, a college professor for a number of years or whatever it would take to, however I would get that level of insight. I have, personally, I have none of that. Um, so to hear us you know, we all talk about these kinds of things. And, um, you know, I think research gives you some skill in prototyping and iterating and measuring in order to make the kinds of changes in the implementation that you're making. But I don't know about you. I feel like I am amateurish, I guess, in terms of my educational theory. Mm, absolutely. And I think, you know, talking to the team who are doing this work, like it's really, really, really hard, really hard work to come up with the best way to share this knowledge with people in your organisational context in a way that is, you know, um, always time constrained. I mean, so uh, at Atlassian, we, we have a, a 
long history of doing kind of internal training. Um, we have these things called boot camps and people have been, it's kind of almost like a little voluntary system where people come in and they run these boot camps. You can go and learn about, you know, the, the finer details of advanced Jira administration or you can come in and learn about how to do a customer interview. Um, but the, the, you know, the, the, the time frame around that was like, you know, like a two-hour boot camp was a long boot camp. Most boot camps were like an hour. And so, yeah, when we started thinking about this, we're like, we're going to need at least a day, maybe two days. And everyone's like, nobody will turn up. Um, but, yeah, I mean, fortunately we have, we've, we've, we do day-long sessions and people have been turning up, so that's great. But, um, but yeah, it's it's huge effort to try to come up with something that works well. And every time we do these courses, you know, the, the, the trainers, educators go away and think about what works, how, how can we do it better? So we iterate every single time. So, yeah, it's, it's a huge amount of effort. Um, I think in larger organisations too, there are other people in the organisation who are also tasked with learning type stuff. So we have we have a, a couple of different teams at Atlassian who are kind of involved in, in you know, helping educate within the organisation. So we're building a lot of relationships with different parts of the org than we have before in order to try to get some support and even just infrastructure. Like there's just a whole lot of like logistics behind setting this up if you want to do it at any kind of scale. So it, you know, it's, it's great to, to have that support internally and it's really good to start to build these relationships, you know, across the organisation in different ways. But, um, yeah, I think... I think that we certainly underestimated the the challenge of just designing what education looks like and how to make it run well. It's it's a massive, massive effort. Well, it's not the material. You guys probably have at hand a pretty good set of, all right, here's how to go do this. If you brought an intern onto your team, you could probably get them up to speed with material that you have, but mm-hmm. you're trying to change a culture. Yeah, I think the advantage I have as a, I don't know, the context I have as an external educator is that people are opting in uh, or and that I have to go by the assumption that they want to be there and I don't have access to what the outcomes are. I mean, I might through someone that's my gatekeeper, but it's kind of it's kind of on them. I have the responsibility for the training, but not the responsibility for the outcomes, which is what you all are kind of working with, so... I sort of I envy you and I don't envy you, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I think I, I, I like it because, you know, going back to the build, measure, learn thing, right? I mean, I, and again, we, we, did a, we did a learn before we did our build and measure um, because we're researchers and that's what we do. Uh, but it is it's super interesting to see the behaviours of people who have come through the training and see whether they shift or not. And that, you know, that gives us... We get, obviously, we get feedback from people after the course who tell us whether they thought it was useful or not useful and what they liked and didn't like and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then we actually get to observe because through our ops team, you know, they come through us to do their recruiting and get their incentives so we can keep a little bit more of, a, of an eye on what activity is coming out and see if there is any sort of shifting in that as well. And it's not just courses as well. It's thinking about, like, what's the overall ecosystem? What are other things that we can be doing where we are sort of reaching out to to help support people on this journey as well. Before we did educating, we had advisors who um, who kind of made themselves available to go and, and sort of support teams who recognised that they might have a need for some help with getting their research right. Um, so that was kind of our first attempt, but we, we had to pivot into educating because of the time factor. We'd go in and give advice and everybody would go, that's great advice, totally love to do that, but I have to get this done by next Thursday. So, um, so I'm going to ignore your advice for now and carry on with mm, what I was going mm, to do anyway. Mm. 
uh, and that that was pretty frustrating. So yeah, we sort of we felt like we have to invest in trying to get ahead of the curve a little bit, try to get ahead, trying to not necessarily influence the stuff that has to happen by next Thursday, but try to encourage teams to start being proactive and, and planning to do research instead of doing this really reactive uh, work instead, right. or as well as the reactive work, perhaps. I don't know. It's what yeah to have the right mix. Yeah. I wonder if, um, and this is probably not gonna not gonna be turned out to be true, but I wonder about sort of plan, you know being proactive and planning versus time because that the time pressure to me is about oh we only have so many hours to spend on this or it's or that we need calendar wise we need to be there next Thursday, um, but being proactive says well if we started thinking about it three weeks ago we'd be ready for Thursday to do it kind of quote the right way. I'm wondering like. Can we, can, can we tease apart the pressures? One is like no proactivity that there's sort of the very short term kind of thinking is different than hours required. Is that is that true? I think so, because I think I think that even when we do the short term stuff, we we still spend like quite a lot of time and, and effort and and the the planning in advance doesn't necessarily like the more proactive work doesn't necessarily, I don't think, entail more actual work. It just might be that, you know, you put in your recruitment request a couple of weeks beforehand so that we can try to make sure that the people that you meet are the right kinds of people uh, instead of, you know, if you have to have to have it done, you know, in three or four days' time, then your ability to be careful and selective in terms of who you recruit to participate in the research is very much limited. So we see, you know, when we when – we, when we have those kind of time constraints, we see everybody just going to unmoderated usability testing on their panel, um, and that you know that that introduces a whole lot of problems in terms of like what you're able to learn and, and how reliable that might be. Um, uh, I'm just uh, I was thinking for a second about you know when theoretically when you do your unmoderated usability testing, you should still be watching the videos, right? So that should take as much time as watching. You know, a handful of carefully recruited people being, you know, doing this this sessions kind of in in a in a facilitated way. But the reality is, I think that most people don't watch the videos. So, but which speaks to quality. Yeah, right. There we are back again. Well, it, it seems like there's a you know for the profession overall, maybe one way to start sort of framing the way around this time pressure thing is to is to decouple uh, proactiveness versus sort of hours burned. That it's going to be the similar number of hours burned, but if you start earlier, the quality goes up. I had and I had never really thought about those two things as being separate. Mm. Yeah, and I don't think people do. I think when people think about, and this is so. I mean, I we, I just said the word quality. I'm trying not to say quality anymore. I'm trying to talk about meaningfulness more now. I think um, because whenever you talk about quality, the the pushback that you get is, well, it doesn't need to be perfect, Lisa. It doesn't need to be academic. I just need enough data to be able to make a decision. And 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 I understand that, but then I see the data upon which they're making the decision and that makes me worry, right? And I think that's, we want to we get out of this discussion of like quality levels and more into sort of reliability levels, like how reliable does it need to be? Because, you know, surely there has to be a bar of reliability that you have to meet before you feel like you've got that information that you need to make a decision. But I see loads of people making decisions off the back of really dreadful and misleading data, uh, and that, that's, that's what worries me. And th- they, they feel confident with that data. But, you know, going back to the data literacy problem, like they really haven't dug into 
why why they might be given really misleading uh, answers as a result of the who and the how and the why, you know, all, all those decisions that they made around how to do the research, most of which have been driven by time constraints. Okay, that's the end of part one of my interview with Lisa. What a cliffhanger. There's more to come from Lisa in the next episode of Dollars to Donuts. Meanwhile, subscribe to the podcast at portugal.com slash podcast or go to your favorite podcasting tool like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, among others. The website has transcripts, show notes, and the complete set of episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter and buy my books, Interviewing Users and Doorbells, Danger, and Dead Batteries from Rosenfeld Media or Amazon. Thanks to Bruce Todd for the Dollars to Donuts theme music. Music.